We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Do you want to walk into a room and have everyone think, damn, who is this alluring glass of just pure amazingness? Well, then you're option should be Indochino when it comes to your wear and your suits. Indochino is the world's largest made-to-measure menswear brand. They make suits, shirts, coats, and more, and everything is made to your exact measurements for a great fit. Indochino's process is simple. Choose your fabric, pick your customizations, and submit your measurements. Your package will be delivered straight to your door in two weeks. You can get measured and design your suit at your nearest Indochino showroom or do it all yourself online at Indochino.com. Incredibly convenient, and I can tell you from personal experience how amazing their product is. I look fly, I look fresh, and it's because of my suit. Right now, you can get $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more at Indochino.com when entering Blue Wire at checkout. Plus, shipping is free. Shipping is free. That's Indochino.com promo code BLUEWIRE for $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more. Incredible deal for made-to-measure clothing. You really have no excuse anymore to wear clothing that doesn't fit. Look great for the holidays and wear Indochino. Again, checkout code BLUEWIRE. Blue Wire. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Nick Pilato. Today, we're going to be breaking down the Giants' latest loss, number eight in a row, week 13, Green Bay Packers, from the All-22 Coaches angle, because it tells us a story that you really can't see 
from the broadcast version. And that's what we're here for. And there's a lot to get to. A focus on Daniel Jones, why you need to know about this Caden Smith cat, tight end, what the hell is happening to this defense on third downs, and a lot of your pretty damn interesting questions that we're excited to dive into. So without further ado, let's jump right on into this thing. Nick, I want to start on the first possession here. One, the Giants failed to convert a third and one on and had to punt. I'm looking back over this play, 13-24 in Q1 for those following along on the All-22 on Game Pass. This is so simple. Hernandez and Solder double team, but they leave a blitzing A-gap middle linebacker free. Hopio's forced to try to block him and the DT at the same time. It just doesn't happen. It's a loss. It's a punt. It's a devastating play. I mean, you just can't punt on third and ones. First possession is supposed to be setting the tone. What were your thoughts on this play and this entire first possession by the Giants? I mean, that entire first possession is just a microcosm of the Giants. First off, there was no snow at kickoff. It was very, very little. So the conditions weren't totally abysmal at this point. But the first drive on that second and sixth play, Remmers tried to pass Dean Lowry to Simonson. And again, some sort of miscommunication. Simonson was a very tough angle for him to block. And it just left Saquon by himself in the backfield with the defensive lineman. And luckily, Barkley was able to run between Remmers and Zeitler to pick up one yard. But it's just sloppy, sloppy, sloppy offensive line play to start this game, which is so damn consistent with these New York Giants under Pat Shermer and then the Giants are gifted that third and one because the neutral zone infraction and they try to run inside zone again against a zero tech and two three techs with like you said the blitzing middle linebacker which left Jalapio to block Blake Martinez and Montrevious Adams which is a lose-lose of course obviously resulted in a punt I mean how many times have we seen defensive coordinators scheme advantageous numbers against the Giants offensive line? The team's predictable. The offensive line doesn't execute their assignments, nor does the coaching alter or adjust enough to assist this unit, which I feel has talent. I do, Dan. I feel like the unit has talent. Defenses just should move their linebackers around and blitz the gap last second, which we've seen defenses do against the Giants. Forces miscommunications, and whether it be against the run to alter run fits and things of those lines for the defense or against the pass, it doesn't matter because the defense seems to always have an advantage on this Giants offensive line. And a few things there, Nick, because this happened all day, both against the run and mostly against the pass. And like you said, they see it on tape. This offensive line has talent. It hasn't been developed correctly under this regime. Eyes on Hal Hunter, offensive line coach, Pat Shermer. But more importantly, they're seeing ways to beat predictable inside zone play calls because when you use inside zone this often, it's very easy to scheme against. And that's exactly what they're doing. This isn't the first time, like you said, we've seen it happen. But why is it repeating itself in week 13 of the season? And hey, guess what, Pat? Maybe that would have been a play where you use a fullback there because a fullback would have saved that play, in my opinion, just based on how easy it was for them to get such quick penetration. And if you look at that play, Nick, on that third and one, it's just so frustrating because if the Giants just simply execute blocking the A-gap blitzer, it's going to be a guaranteed first down. The rest of the play was blocked up right. So it's just frustrating, Nick. But then we go over to the other side of the ball where the frustration started right away in this game. This game had a chance to be a shootout if the Giants had kept it on, on offense. They didn't. But it never had a chance to be a game where the Giants were going to hold the team under, I don't know, 31 points because seven times this season, a team has scored 31 or more. Most in Giants franchise history, tied for the most. And right away, 
happens right away with these coverage breakdowns. We'll start at 12.03, first quarter, right after the Giants have that pathetic first possession. Second and three, what happens, Nick? This is the Giants defense in a nutshell right here. Packers come out in 21 personnel, and this is a design shot to Lazard off of a motion play. The Giants are in a running type of defense with both safeties up. DeAndre Baker and Bethay are on Adams to the boundary, and Lazard does that motion to the field to get himself with Jackrabbit out there, kind of isolated. Mercedes Lewis is also to the field, and he runs a seam route, which is important because it occupies Julian Love, which ensures that there is no inside leverage coming from that field side of the defense. But on the backside, Adam's job is not necessarily to run a route, in my opinion, if you watch the play. His job is to occupy Baker and Bethay, which he does. Adam runs about 11 yards off the line of scrimmage in a sort of a lackadaisical manner. And I don't know if you picked up on this, Dan. He wasn't really sure. He just kind of like ran and then just slowed up his route. And that just opened up the boundary side's deep portion of the field. And it keeps both of those boundary players within 20 yards of the line of scrimmage. Jenkins has no inside help, and he's sort of burnt on the route anyways, which leads to that first big chunk play or 43-yard gain. This was all by design, and the Packers had a hunch about the defensive play call and utilized it to take advantage of the Giants' secondary. And, I mean, on that play, though, Rodgers got nailed by Williams and Tomlinson had some pretty good interior pressure as well. And he also occupied two offensive linemen, but per usual for not and doesn't matter because they didn't get home yep no doubt about it and then right away it seems like later in this drive the Giants finally get the Packers into a situation second and eight inside the red zone this is a good opportune time for the cut for the defense but seems like Devontae Adams just gets wide open over the middle here what's going on with the Giants coverage here Nick and is this something new or is this something we've seen <laughs> on the Adams first touchdown you want to know what's actually really funny about that that's the same play the Giants run from various formations that we literally talk about every single week. A similar type of play from that. It's a bunch formation with a tight end by himself tight. It's just a simple mesh concept, which is a common man beater in every playbook with that snag route over the top, a wheel from the running back, and then a seven from the receiver to the running back side, which created a high-low. Usually that route is different in the Giants playbook, but that's what they ran. And Ogletree just follows that mesh, and he just doesn't account for the snag, leaving Adams wide open. Rodgers throws through, I think it was like a sidearm pass through the defenders for that easy touchdown, but you would like to see Ogletree have some a little bit more awareness, but he saw the mesh, saw it coming, wanted to pass it off the mayo. No one accounted for Adams. Bethay was a little bit too far deep. And Adams, I mean, he's a very, very good route runner. He knows how to find soft spots in coverage, whether it be man, whether it be zone. Yep. And he did just that against this Giants secondary. This Ogletree, Nick, because it's just enough, really, with him. I'm just flabbergasted at how many times we see mistakes like this where he, you know— follows the mesh and doesn't worry about and doesn't isn't well aware of every every aspect of the play call and he hasn't seen it enough maybe or he hasn't isn't processing he doesn't have a memory enough of what that look may show and what he has to account for there what's his responsibility because that touchdown to me is on him and you look at you mentioned something about Rodgers he made some ridiculous throws from completely off balance bases in this game weird arm angles earlier on this drive they converted a third and eight where Adams where the Giants had it nicely covered uh, Adams was running a quick in but Rodgers was able to avoid pressure and throw a weird 
sidearm type ball to Adams who broke back towards the sideline and Valentine had already committed a little bit too far to the inside on the end but I don't even blame him there like the play should have been dead by that point but nope because Rodgers got away with it and that was the difference in this game in my opinion the quarterback play um, for the most part I mean the Giants had ways to beat this Packers secondary but on the flip side Rodgers just played unbelievable out of his mind football uh, in this game And so obviously we talk about it, and that drive ends up resulting after a breakdown in coverage early. Like you said, Jenkins, uh, you know, had a little bit of mishap there, but the Packers called a great play to beat that defense. A breakdown on third and eight when Rodgers really just made an awesome play and bounds uncommitted, and then finally just bad awareness by Ogletree. And that, my friends, is a touchdown. But it looked on the flip side, Nick, as we fast forward, like the Giants could have maybe turned this into a shootout. Um, Now, before we break down the next drive where the Giants scored a touchdown, I want to say this. Daniel Jones has been taking a lot of flack for this game, and I've made it clear on multiple occasions, just so you guys know who are listening to this podcast, I'm no biased Giants commentator. I came into this with a second-round grade on Jones before the draft. I didn't want to take him in the first round, and I wasn't thrilled with the decision, but I've liked what I've seen. And for me, when I rewatch this game on All-22, there's a lot more good than bad. I really do believe that a lot of people harping on him on Twitter for the interceptions, um, obviously the turnovers overall throughout his rookie season. But a lot of these same people are also the people who said he was going to be a terrible NFL pro and who love Dwayne Haskins, a guy who completed sub 50%, or I think it was one pass over 50% of his pa- uh, completion rate in this pass game for the Redskins with 150 yards and no touchdowns. So, I mean, what exactly is he doing? But some of the reason I liked Jones in this game was, one, I thought he did a much better job of stepping up to avoid immediate pressure. And two, I thought he made some really, really big-time throws. And They were off balance from bad platforms and with weird arm angles. And one of those came at 728. The Giants had a third and two. And Jones runs the PA boot. And he's throwing from off balance here. The Packers did not buy the boot. And yet he gets the ball to Caden Smith for this first down. And that wasn't the only time he did that. I mean, we have another play later where on first and 10 from 645 in the first quarter, Jones throws off really good arm talent here. He steps up to avoid the pressure in the pocket and then throws to the right hash outside the numbers. The ball travels about 21 yards, hits Slayton. Uh, the Packers tried to challenge this play, but it was ruled a cat. So those really stood out to me. But I want to know what you think, Nick, of at 531 in the first quarter. Jones, do, uh, I thought Jones did a great job here of motioning tight end Caden Smith from left to right to help block and pass pro. And this kind of allows him to find Slayton. Did you notice in this game some hand signals and some pre-snap stuff Jones was doing to change protections? It did seem like he had uh, more control than we've seen when it comes to the protections and the way the Packers kind of line up and Petten lines his defense up. They're usually very, very wide. They have Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith very wide in a way to assist that is to bring Caden Smith closer to the line of scrimmage, maybe chip him, maybe keep him in a block, which we saw on a couple different occasions in this game from Caden Smith. And Caden Smith held up pretty well when it came yeah. to blocking, much better than he did against the Bears. Kind of wanted to give him a nod when it comes to that phase of the game because it's something that I had some questions about. But yeah, that fourth and five play, that 531. I mean, I was very surprised Petten didn't bring the house or at least go with man coverage. He played like an incredibly soft zone coverage on that play. And it was just a it was a seven route from the number two. And then Slayton was the number one. He engages the cornerback and just goes inside. And the cornerback dropped because it was a seven route. And it was just an easy pitch and catch. But you're right, man. Jones, the one play to Caden Smith, he was rolling out, throwing off platform. And then that throw to Darius Slayton was absolutely beautiful, high outside Slayton 
able to pluck it very, very strong hands and awareness along the sidelines. Like you said, it was challenged, did not get overturned. So you really like to see Jones have that trust in Darius Slayton, which, I mean, let's be honest, Slayton has warranted that trust. He's come up in big spots before for Daniel Jones, and Jones' maneuvering of the pocket was very evident, as you said, as well in this game, stepping up, kind of shrugging that back shoulder like you see quarterbacks like Tom Brady do. So all those little things are intriguing, but they don't make the stat sheet. People judge a lot of things by the stat sheet. Yep, and even so, stat sheet shows uh, plus 60% completion rate again. You know, Haskins is not doing that. (laughs) Most rookies aren't doing that. 240 yards where we got Haskins throwing for those type of guys throwing for a buck 50. I mean, I just don't know at some point. And this drive featured the three plays we just talked about, two really big boy throws, and then the the and then the switch and, ta- and pass protection on that fourth and five to get Caden Smith over. If he doesn't do that, that play's blown up. And then finally, the fourth play of this drive, the Giants are third and three with 323 left in the first quarter, and we get the Shepard TD on a play where Jones does an excellent job here, sliding to his left a little bit, falling away. Way while rolling to his left and getting clobbered because Hernandez and Alapio just again no shot here on this one to contain Darius Smith who's again on these these blitzes where it just looks like on tape the Packers defensive coordinator saw something an easy way to get pressured through this a gap I mean it's just like immediate pressure and Darius Smith did this a lot where he wasn't lined up with his hand in the dirt and kind of just lined up over the over the line of scrimmage uh, standing. And just totally burned here. Another really bad pass pro. But I thought Jones did a great job here. What was your breakdown of the first touchdown to Shepard? The Packers came out in a too high look. So they were showing a cover two with a hard shell with press coverage. And remember, at this point of the game, the conditions suck ass right now. Oh, yeah. And I and I really did like this play call by the Giants. It was a three-by-one set to, to the field. Smith runs a vertical route to split the safeties, which occupies both of them to an extent. And then the number two receiver is Latimer. He runs a quick hitch at the sticks, which Shepard has a number one running a double move slow go route in plus splits of about five yards off the numbers. And that deep half safety has absolutely no chance of getting to Shep's destination because he had to respect Caden Smith. So all Shep has to do on this play is beat Kevin King on the double move. And King, he's a long rangy cornerback, which presumably means he's not agile, but that presumption is somewhat erroneous because King tested in the 94th percentile in three cone for cornerbacks according to mock draftable. But again, these conditions suck balls, so you have to keep that in mind. So Shep opens King's hips with a nice double move inside, then out and up on the slow go route, and Shep creates about three and a half yards of separation, which is enough for Daniel to put the ball into the lap of Sterling to get those six points. And I'm not sure if Barkley needed a breather, maybe because the play prior was a screen pass, but Buck Allen was on the field for pass protection on this important third down, which is interesting given the struggles Barkley has had this season in pass protection. You don't know, maybe it was because he was tired or because they feel Buck Allen may kind of carve a niche into this offense and be one of those players who can be out there in pass protection, which we've seen in the past the Ravens utilize him for that reason. Yeah, and this was an interesting play to me because it wasn't the best throw from Jones, but it was really hard to make a best throw as any quarterback here with the immediate pressure, which was the case a lot of times in games. We had a lot of plays blown up by poor pass protection in this game, specifically early on from Nate Solder. We'll talk about one play in a second um, where he just got destroyed. But, you know, and yet he gets the ball out there, and Shepard really makes an awesome catch here. He does a great job to trap the ball with his hands and, and keep it from the dirt there. 
Um, so I think Shepard is a big piece they need moving forward, and I'm really happy to see him back on the field developing this rapport moving forward with Daniel Jones. But now it's a 7-7 game, and you think maybe the Giants can make this a game, but we flip it back to the defensive side of the ball, and with the quarter almost over, 123 left in the first quarter, this was almost the biggest joke of any defensive play I've seen. The Lazard 37-yard touchdown where he had about, I don't know, eight yards of separation wide open, just cruising into the end zone. The Giants have a play designed here where, to my naked eye, Nick, and that's why I'm about to ask you, it just looks like they have Bethea as the Bethay, I'm sorry, as the only player here responsible for guarding Lazard. Meanwhile, he starts 15 yards off the ball. Um, so Lazard runs this simple looking deep post um, and Bethay gets turned around trying to, you know, track vertically because first he runs vertically as anyone would with any deep post. Um, am I, is there anything more to this play or is this just uh, an aggressive call by Betcher that went wrong? I mean, I want to believe that Bethay believed that he had some sort of inside help here, but I don't necessarily think that. I just think right. it was a subtle move that opened Bethay's hips and Bethay was certain that it was going to be a route breaking in the opposite direction. And it wasn't. It but if broke you have no inside, inside help and there's no really outside help here, what's the designer? The design is to put a 38-year-old safety or however old Bethay is at this point against a vertical slot. Like, I just don't understand it. No, neither do I. Maybe they were hoping the pressure would get home or yep. something along those lines. But Bethay just – that subtle outside shoulder fake and you just do any of that against – any of these giants secondary and when it comes to the youth back there they're inexperienced they're not used to those subtleties and the nuances of kind of reading a wide receiver up his stem but Bethay is just old and the conditions are bad so he sees that subtle outside shoulder fake and he just bites and fully commits and then there's just no one to cover the ass of Bethay once Lazard breaks inside for that 37 yard score I mean on this play it looks like the giants are in a zone match and love kind of carries that backside number one on the in route, and Beal maintains his spot towards the boundary sideline because Jones or Williams, I'm not sure which running back it was, was kind of in the flat, so we had to respect that. And this is while Zimenez and Mayo jumped down on the tight end, fake capping, and running towards the opposite flat. And Buffett, man, he just fell for the double move. I mean, can't give away that kind of inside leverage, and he did, and there was just nothing but green, well, white grass, I guess we'll say, because <laughs> of the snow. And the conditions were bad, man. I mean, like, you could look at Aaron Rodgers at an awesome day, but that's Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest arm talents I've ever seen in my lifetime, if not the greatest. Maybe him, maybe Mahomes. I don't know. It's one of the two for me. Uh, Favre is certainly up there, too. So I'm not going to totally, you know, go off on Jones for having some bad ball placement in this game, which he did at times. Times he had great ball placement. We'll get to that. Times he had bad. Because I'd love to see some of these other quarterbacks that aren't Aaron Rodgers, Hall of Fame-level arm talent throwing in these conditions because they weren't great. But now we got a 14-7 game here uh, for the Giants, and it just gets to the point where you're like, okay, now they're going to try a trick play on the, on the next possession. And, and before we break down this trick play, because it was a flea flicker that went horribly wrong, I, we're going to get into that. I do want to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors here. Guys, doesn't it suck when we receive these holiday gifts that are so cliche, things like socks, wallets, and ties, and we show up to these holiday parties with our faces looking like a beaver? Well, Perry's is the gift that is both thoughtful 
and practical. Listen, we all want a nice close shave so we can all be feeling ourselves at the holidays and everyone will be looking at us and being like, that guy has his stuff together. And listeners of this show can get $5 off any Harry's shave set by heading to harrys.com slash bluewire. Free shipping ends on December 16th, so act now. It's a great deal for you, and if this is a lady listening, it's a great deal for him. Holiday sets start at just $20. That's within Secret Santa limits, so you should probably capitalize on this. And Harry's Blades refill are as low as $2 each, so your guy will save money over time. It comes ready to gift in a handsome holiday gift box, and your gift gives back. 1% of each sale will be donated to charitable organizations. Isn't that the holiday spirit, ladies and gentlemen? As a special offer for fans of this show, we partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including their limited edition holiday sets, when you go to harrys.com slash bluewire. Plus, you'll get free shipping. Each Harry's shaving set comes with a weighted handle with option to engrave, if you're so inclined, five blade razor cartridges, foaming shave gel for a rich lather, travel cover to protect your blades, packaged in a handsome little holiday gift box. Free shipping ends on December 16th, so act now. Just go to harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire. Ah, you smell that, ladies and gentlemen? The holiday rush is here. You have to be able to ship orders out quickly, efficiently, and most importantly, affordably. But how do you keep track of all of those orders, decide which shipping carrier to use, or if you're even getting the best rates? Luckily, ShipStation can help. With just a few clicks, you'll be managing orders, printing labels, and getting those products out the door and delivered in time for the holidays. ShipStation works with all of the major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, and UPS, so you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. No wonder ShipStation is the number one numero uno choice of online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. Take the hassle out of the holiday shipping this year. Let ShipStation help you handle it all with ease. Just use my offer code blue to get a 60-day free trial that's two months free of no hassle stress-free holiday shopping in this holiday season i'm sure we can all use that just visit shipstation.com click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in blue like the color that's shipstation.com enter offer code blue shipstation make ship happen all right, Nick, break down this flea flicker to me because I'm looking at it on all 22 and I see one vertical route into about five Packers defenders, not a single soul fooled, and then maybe some little outlet route to Shepard that's completely covered and the pressure got. In addition to this, the Giants couldn't even block it up and give Jones a clean base. What the hell was this here? Yeah, I uh, tried to look at this play several times to figure out what the hell is going on. I'm guessing they were hoping that the safeties would bite up, but the the 
deep safety was 20 yards off the line of scrimmage. And they kind of rolled to a cover two type look right yeah. at the snap where the like, you can't even tell if it's the boundary or field safety because there's so much snow on the field. But it would be the boundary safety kind of fades back. And then the receiver running the route, he you know starts off slow like you're supposed to kind of sell it. But it, nobody, not one Packers defender bit on this. And Jones just did the right thing. Throw it over the receiver's head in the flat, which was Sterling Shepard. Just throw it over his head. It was a two-man route concept out there with everybody else blocking. Nobody else released to none of the tight ends that were blocking. So it was one of those plays where it was just dead from the beginning. And there's really not much you could uh, do from the Giants' perspective here because none of the Packers bit. They were just incredibly disciplined with their assignments against the pass. Yeah, Nick, and dead from the beginning is not exactly how I would like the Giants' trick plays to be described, especially considering how rarely they use them and, you know, how, you know, this is part of the job, Pat. If you're going to call a trick play at a pretty much opportune time, I like the call, the, the decision there, well, then you probably have to do a better job of designing that said play because two plays later, the Giants threw an interception, which we're going to get to, and I want to hear your breakdown for that, Nick. It was Daniel Jones' first interception of the game, and it came at 4.49, I believe, in the second quarter. But one play before that on second and 10, just a play after the missed trick play, the Giants actually had a play that could have worked. Slayton got open on a deep end. If Jones just had any time in the pocket, but boom, split second, Nate Solder gets destroyed here. So we don't need to break that down, Nick, but I want it to be noted how many times the pass protection breakdowns affect Daniel Jones, affect the bottom line, affect the Giants, affect them moving the ball, and sometimes, like in this case, lead to a third and ten situation. Not easy for any quarterback, and Jones throws an interception. What did what was your breakdown of the interception there? <laughs> First, I want to touch on the uh the play, because we were just talking about how Daniel Jones motioned people out to help block the wide rushers of Zadarius and Preston Smith. On that Nate Solder play, Barkley was kind of moved right over top of Zadarius Smith, and Barkley's chip of Zadarius Smith worked against Nate Solder. And that is just the New York Giants in 2019 right there. Barkley gets a clean shot on him, hits him inside, but Solder oversets and gives up that inside leverage, not expecting him to be hit back that way. <laughs> and then Solder has no chance to even block Darius Smith on that specific play. And it's just, that's 2019 New York Giants. There's really no other thing to say about that. But onto Jones' first interception here. Giants came out in shotgun 11 personnel, double inside curls from the number one receivers and the tight end releasing to the flat with the number two receiver doing a double move at the sticks. Wasn't exactly innovative or creative, but was not a good decision by Daniel Jones. I mean, the Packers rotate to a too high look at the snap, which may have confused Jones, but it was still man coverage and Kevin King had the underneath portion of the route. King's back is turned for a bit, but the throw was too far inside and you just got to weigh the risk there and be risk averse and not throw that football. And that decision should have kind of jumped up in DJ's mind, but it did not throw that outside throw it away take a sack punt it don't throw an interception in that situation i mean it was an ill-advised throw in a high leverage third and ten situation i'm not sure dj accounted for kevin king there I, even though he was blatantly right there and king kind of had his eyes on it but these are kind of growing pains man and 
Jones on this play was forced to step up in the pocket. Seems like he had his eyes down field the entire time. Hernandez was beat with a quick snatch of his inside hand and a subtle arm over from Zadarius Smith on the specific play, which forced DJ to step up. And he felt the pressure, had his eyes downfield the entire time, but still forced the ball into that coverage. And I guess he thought maybe he could squeeze it in and King wasn't going to turn around, but King did. And end result was that interception. Yeah, and part of the issue here, again, is the Giants are in a third and 10 situation. I saw a stat today that the Giants throw the ball on first and 10, uh, fewer than all but 11 teams in the NFL, and their efficiency on those first and 10s is among the lowest in the league. They continue to put their rookie quarterback in these really difficult second and third and long situations. Now, here, in my estimation of the play, Nick, I thought that Kevin King had inside leverage the entire play, the cornerback for the Packers, so it's a really ill-advised throw. There wasn't much open. They might have had something a little bit with Shepard, but not really over the middle of the field. But in this spot, when it's just a completely well-covered play like that, he really should be pulling the ball under and just trying to get what he can with his legs, in my opinion, there, because it's a blown play um, in that situation. But, you know, part of the issue here is that he's late here and that he's trying to make something happen. And the bigger part of the issue here, Nick, for me, and just like one of his other interceptions, which came on a third and 18, is that the Giants are in these really difficult situations. It's just, you know, it's just not easy for a quarterback. I don't know how else to break this down. Um, But let's dive a little bit into another possession coming up. We're 9.59 in the second quarter. This one was third and six, and it stood out to you more than it did for me. So why did this play specifically stand out to you, Nick? Yeah, it was a third and six, 9.59 to go. The play was incomplete, although a penalty on the Packers made it third and one. But I really liked the call just because it was slightly different. It was a loose bunch formation to the right with the backside receiver just off the numbers in about minus two splits. And DJ motions Barkley to that bunch side wide off the numbers by about two yards. The number one receiver in the bunch was Corey Latimer. He goes on an inside drag at the snap while the number two receiver is Caden Smith on the line of scrimmage. And he engages at the press corner and runs up the seam to clear out the number three wide receivers route, who is Sterling Shepard, who was on a follow angle route over the middle of the field, which is generally excellent against man or zone coverage because any kind of thing over the middle of the field is usually good with horizontal crossers against man coverage and in zone coverage. Sometimes that first route, hence Latimer's drag, can take the zone, the hook zone defender away from his zone, allowing the follow route to kind of take advantage of it. But I thought this was a good play. It was just executed incredibly well by Tremont Williams to force the incompletion, but I like the motion. I like the fact that the Giants created confusion for the defense pre-snap, and I like the utilization of these types of routes out of bunch and stack formations. The Giants play calling doesn't create nearly enough conflict on defenders, and this play had that built into it, but Williams just played it tremendously. Yeah, no doubt, but you know, Nick, all I hear when I listen to that from you is that you're liking a slightly different look from the Giants offense. And that to me is part of the problem there that there's, if that gets, if that gets us a little bit going here, but this, you know, this game was still in hand in the second half and there were some interesting plays. I thought at five Oh one in the second quarter, this play really stood out to me. It was second and three. The Giants were driving and Jones had a play action bootleg to his left. This was the play that really stood out to me as, okay, Jones, I'm not worried about his arm talent in weather like this or really any conditions. He was rolling to his left as off, obviously much more difficult for a quarterback to make throws rolling to their left than rolling to his right. And the pressure was there immediately. 
After the roll, he kind of spun off his back foot, no balance base from, a, again, a different arm slot, threw a nice ball to Sterling Shepard to complete it for the for the first down there. Um, so that really stood out to me. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add on that, Nick. No, I mean, it was just an excellent rollout and off-platform throw from Daniel Jones with pressure right in his face, off his back foot, put it right where it needed to be for Sterling Shepard. Just like you said, I don't really question his arm talent too much when it comes to putting the ball where it needs to be, although he does make mistakes from time to time, which we go over on this podcast. Yeah, no doubt, obviously. Um, And again, there were definitely less so with arm talent issues for me, just, you know, ball placement wasn't great in this game, especially after the ankle injury. So I wonder if that has some role in it, Um, but who knows? You know, I thought that they had such a crazy missed out trade a field goal for the Packers type game because that's how the Giants defense works. You know there's more breakdowns coming later. And I thought the biggest missed opportunity came with 247 to go in the second quarter. Really a touchdown here would have, you know, got them into a game here with the Packers, more of a shootout. They had second a goal here and it ends up being a play where Jones kind of has to throw the ball away to Barkley out of bounds in Barkley's direction. But if you look at this play again, Nick, they have Barkley kind of a slow developing route where where and eventually, obviously, the O line pass protection breakdowns. The O line pass protection in this game was terrible. That's no one's giving enough credit to that when you're breaking down Jones this week. And it's okay because that's what people are going to do. Again, if you had an agenda that you didn't like Jones pre draft and you liked Haskins a lot more, you have to stick to it. That's how it goes. You have to be proven right. That's at least what I'm seeing a lot of. But anyway, back to this actual play where the ball sailed over Barkley's heads after the slow developing route where he kind of runs a little bit over the middle, then circle, kind of circles, rounds his route out, in my opinion. Not a great route. Um, and breaks toward the sideline. But if they had just run an arrow route here, Nick, did you see this play and how wide open the middle of the field was based on where the Packers' coverage goes after the snap because the Giants have a bunch, trips bunch to the right side? Did you see like just how wide open the arrow route would have been? It would have been incredibly wide open because everybody was focused on the three receiver side. They all shaded that way, the defenders. And then there was a seven route by the only receiver that was to Barkley's side, which cleared out. And uh, Barkley doesn't seem like he was given a open choice here. Sometimes they, well, running backs have choice routes. This was designed to the flat. And I want to uh, just say that the route might have sucked a little bit because of the conditions. That's probably something yes, that's feasible. Yes, like that for sure. Yeah, it, the angle route, though, in this situation, it, he would have caught it and walked in and probably wouldn't have been walk touched. Walk-in touchdown. And it's just crazy to watch because, like, you see the good teams in the NFL. They don't miss those opportunities there. Um, and I don't know if that's on Shermer for not recognizing based on the coverage and based on what he was going to show the Packers defense that that would be open. I mean, you have a guy, like you said, running a seven. I mean, that's clear. It's just perfectly designed for an arrow route. And I don't understand why they're running – why they're designing where they're designing a play where Barkley's going in the same direction as the other intended receiver on that side instead of just, you know, wide open over the middle. But, you know, this is just part of the Giants football. They settle for a 27 yard field goal on this drive. And it's key because as we move on to the second half, you know, it's not going to last long. The Packers have a third and 13, 14, 11 start of the third quarter. And what, how the hell does Lazard get this open again, Nick? Yeah, man, it looks like the Giants are in a cover three zone with the number two receiver from the field side running a deep post and the number one running to the sticks and going inside. Sort of like a dig route of sorts, but Lazard was just looking for the soft spot in the zone. 
The number two's route carries Bethay about 10 yards past the sticks and leaves a void between Love and Ogletree. That void was exploited, and it resulted in a first down. Would like to see Love have a bit more spatial awareness in the situation here since Haley was on the running back in the flat, but Love didn't sense it fast enough. Still, I mean, Rodgers had all day to throw the football I mean, on several different occasions in this game, and this play was one of them. I mean, the pass rush just is not getting home, and the Giants secondary is just too young, too inexperienced to cover receivers, especially when Aaron Rodgers is throwing the football for an extended period of time when no one can get home and they get some interior pressure that's just blocked away and Rodgers just maneuvers in the pocket. It's just, it's the defense really needs a player like Chase Young, as we had said several times. But I mean, how many times is this going to happen? And how many times are we going to kind of just beat this dead horse with this Giants secondary? Yeah, I mean, those breakdowns, like you said, won't happen as often when you have a guy like Chase Young because it obviously will help a guy like Leonard Williams and Dexter Lawrence and Marcus Golden if they resign him. But this year, this Giants team, Nick, they got all day, and there's breakdowns. But on the flip side, the Giants were still in this game even after this um, you know, breakdown. And a couple of Jones's best throws, in my opinion, came on the next drive. The first one was 10-07, first and 10. It was eventually negated by a penalty, uh, offsetting penalty. But Jones put a perfect ball, I thought, down the left sideline, 29-yard gain to Slayton. And then a few plays later, was forced with a third and 12 on 8.46 left in the third quarter. He hit a 43-yard deep post on a third and 12. No, I don't know. Anyone, no one's talking about this this week. It's only about the interceptions. But both of these plays were really good. 29 and 43-yard gains, one negated by penalty. What was your breakdown, or what did you make of both plays? Both those plays were excellent throws by Daniel Jones, and you're right, man. No one's going to talk about it. It doesn't fit their narrative, and I mean, it shows up on the stat sheet, but the Giants ended up losing. But on that first one, first and 10, empty set, three by two, pack showing man with a safety 20 yards off the line of scrimmage in a middle of the field closed look. The Giants run a mesh concept underneath with a deep post from the strong side number two and two nine routes from the number one receivers, those outside receivers. The throw by Jones on this play is flawless against the coverage. He throws Slayton open in between that safety, bearing down hard, and in between Kevin King, who was pressing Slayton at the line of scrimmage and all the way up his route. Slayton did a good job winning at the line of scrimmage through the physicality of King, who was a more physical corner, but King actually did a pretty solid job of riding Slayton off the red line in between the numbers and the sideline and kind of forcing Slayton towards the sideline a little bit. But the throw by Jones was high and outside, away from the coverage with touch and precision. The plays that should make Giants fans excited about the future are plays like this. And like you said, this was negated by a penalty. And that's just something that would happen to the Giants in 2019. But then there was the other play, third and 12, after incompletion to Barkley on the slant where Jalapia was beat inside by allowing inside leverage to Montrevious Adams, who utilized a spin move to force another third and long. But Jones here steps up big, three-by-one set with the running back to the weak side out of the shotgun. Still verticals concept in a middle of the field open situation where number 31, Adrian Amos, is tasked to cover Caden Smith deep on the weak side. So the Giants run two verts from the number one and two position to the strength with the number two kind of bending inside towards the seam. While the slot on that same side crosses horizontally at 10 yards to create inside leverage for that number two vertical bend inside. And Jones here throws another very good ball and Latimer uses his body to shield the ball from Tremont Williams, and the throw was in between Williams and Amos. This is another occasion, guys, where Jones throws someone open and puts the ball where it needs to be. I mean, again, like we 
like we've kind of talked about on this podcast, it was an odd game because there are a lot of intriguing takeaways that Jones had. There were a lot of good plays. There were a lot of solid throws that no one's going to be talking about, but there were those ugly throws and those decisions that he probably shouldn't have made. And that's what people are going to focus on again, because a lot of them do have an agenda. Yeah. And listen, he was off on some throws. He missed Latimer early in the game on a kind of throw over the middle. Um, And then he missed, and the intercept, and the two, the last, the latter two interceptions were really bad ball placement as well. A um, couple other throws, but he had a lot of these throws that aren't being talked about, where the ball placement was really good. The Slayton pass and the Vladimir you broke down. The earlier Shepard uh, when he's rolling to his right off balance to Caden Smith. Uh, the play to Slayton that the Packers tried to challenge. The the deep out outside the hash marks. Guys, you, people have to understand something. A rookies aren't making like five or six of these big time throws per game. A. B, if you look at the rookies over the past five years, just go and look at them. B, some of the rookies he's being compared to this year aren't even making one or two of these. I didn't see one big-time throw from Haskins, and I rewatched an entire Carolina game. The guy threw for 150 yards and completed one more pass to go over 50%. I mean, like, I just don't get it. I don't understand what scope he's being held under, and I just wonder, you know, if some of it is based on people wanting to be right about their original analysis of him. And again, I'm not saying he's going to be the next Patrick Mahomes. I see the limitations of Jones. I still think he turns the ball over way too often. He has a fumbling issue. I, that, to me, is more concerning than the interceptions because um, only a few of them, to me, have been in low leverage situations or, I guess, high, whatever the correct term is. I mean, and, and by that, I mean a lot of Jones' interceptions have come on third and long because that's what the Giants put them, the situation they're put, this version of the Giants putting him in. But, I mean, overall – the ball placement was really good for a bad weather game, in my opinion. And I just, if you're going to compare to Aaron Rodgers, of course, it's not going to be look good. But again, we're talking about maybe the greatest arm talent in the history of the NFL throwing in bad weather. Uh, what do you, you're going to compare that? Like Daniel Jones is not the greatest arm talent. We knew that coming in. That's not how he's going to win in the NFL. He's going to win with ball placement and decision making and processing. That's if he gets the the way the giant the path to success for this Giants team, Nick, and I'm pretty sure you agree with me, is finding a system that fits his skill set, and that's and and more so him continuing to improve his ball placement, but more even more importantly than that, his processing, because um, that's the type of quarterback he's going to have to be. Would you agree with that, pretty much? Yeah, the processing for quarterbacks is huge. I mean, that includes pre-snap reads, post-snap reads. And we all know post-snap reads are so damn quick because you have, what, two seconds to read the defense and get the ball out of your hands and kind of agree with the hunch that you had pre-snap. So processing the game from a mental side is gigantic. And Jones has mistakes. Jones has also been solid in certain occasions in that area as well. Sure, but let's also obviously talk about the bad here, Nick, and let's break down both of his latter two interceptions. The first one was the one that was more concerning to me. It's third and 18 because the Giants are a team that gets into third and 18, but 11.26 to go, in case anyone wants to focus on this one in the fourth. Um, And the reason why I was a little more concerned about this is because the ball placement was just simply off. He talked about how he stepped up. He he did a good job actually to step up in the pocket, something he really improved in this game. But, you know, once he did, he took that top forward and and kind of the ball was just way off. And the issue for me was Shepard, if he puts this ball on the spot, Shepard's going to catch this and he's going to run for the first down. So what happened on that interception then finally break down with 643 to go. So the first one, 1126, second one, 643, first and 10 in the fourth quarter. What happened on that interception as well? Like a too high look 
at the snap against a three-by-one set in 11 personnel. The Giants run Caden Smith up the center of the field to split that two-high look with the number one to that side running a very unenthused nine route. And that, I believe, was Scott on that route, which tells me the design was more than likely to Shep or Smith or possibly the backside receiver. Anyways, Shep is in the slot, and he runs up his stem and physically engages Chandran Sullivan before releasing inside. And it doesn't look like that engagement threw off his timing or the destination of Shep's route. It looks like Shep was bracket covered with Savage over the top and Sullivan underneath. And Jones, it, it seems like he overthrew the ball right to the over-the-top defender. And it seemed like it was a bad throw from a clean pocket where he did have time to step up and it was off. But maybe he expected Shep to run it a bit deeper because I did feel Shep's route wasn't exactly at the 18-yard mark. It was a little bit before. And we haven't really seen jones with these kind of overthrows too too often so i was thinking maybe it was a miscommunication between jones and shep but regardless it was an interception and then the next one came with around 643 left first and 10 jones it was an interception double curl and a flare route from the running back to the boundary with a flat from the slot and a vertical from the number one to the field the interception comes from that field side this is excellent coverage by Tremont Williams here but Slayton I want to see if you agree with me he releases outside and tries to go back inside mid stem because Tremont Williams had such good coverage on him which kind of leads me to believe maybe Slayton that going back inside threw off DJ's timing throw. right like yep. yeah threw off the timing and just kind of he expected him to go outside because that's when Jones started to kind of go through the throwing motion, and once Slayton went back inside, Tremont Williams was able to just stick right with it, and then Williams had the outside leverage, which Jones thought Slayton was going to have, and it just seems like that may have been what materialized there. It still was incredibly good coverage and a throw that Jones probably shouldn't have made, but Slayton may bear some blame there for that interception. Yeah, that would be one would be interesting to hear the receiver room because earlier, obviously, we talked about his first interception where the corner had out inside leverage and it was the comeback route to Slayton. This one, if you notice that little, you know, nuance to it, it's like it'd be hard for us to tell if that was a bad ball yeah. got away from Jones or if he thought that, you know, what he saw or I'm sorry, if what he saw changed based on what the receiver changed in his route. And that's something I would love to ask the Giants or ask Jones. Um, but of course, I'm not in the locker room and. Those type of questions never, very rarely get answered, asked by the beat reporters. Um, and I don't think Shermer would give away anything there, but I believe you can get an answer out of Slayton or Jones on that one. But before we dive into some questions from the listeners, because obviously we could spend all the time we want talking about the Giants' defensive breakdowns for in that final quarter that led to the 31 points, but there's really no point to it, in my opinion. Um, it's kind of beating a dead horse, and we kind of went over some of the bigger plays on the defense side of the ball. But I do want to touch on a play, Nick, that you outlined on Twitter, and got and you got a little bit of a, a backlash for from some of the Barkley hive, the beehive, as we call them, but Saquon Barkley hive. So this one was a big play for the Giants because they were starting to move the ball a bit, maybe trying to make a comeback. Third quarter, 7.57 to go, second and 14, Barkley ran for four yards. You thought it could have been bigger, breakdown why. So it's second and 14 because on the first and 10, it seemed like Daniel Jones didn't exactly know the play call. And it was a similar look, only the tight end wasn't on that side where it was going to be a run play to Barkley. But Jones seemed to mess it up, and then he just fell down for that four-yard loss. But this was a four-yard gain, which I believe Giants fans would all take in a heartbeat. But here, it looks like there was a hole that was bigger in that B gap off of Caden Smith's ass. Now, the beginning of the play, the A gap's 
are unoccupied. You have two, three techniques with a linebacker about four yards off the center. So that a gap looks very appetizing, but it closes up because both the three techniques squeeze inside. And then Blake Martinez comes right up to that. So I think Barkley had his eyes on that a gap. And then he just hesitated a little bit and he just didn't have full vision of the line of scrimmage. Didn't sense the fact that Zeitler had a complete seal of Kiki Kinsley with Caden Smith kicking out. I want to say that is Darnell Savage and the fact that Remmers had Preston Smith way up field. It would have been Barkley against that unblocked defender who I believe is Tremont Williams on this play. And he just hesitated just a little bit. And then he just runs into Kiki, takes what he can get. And a lot of people are blaming the injury. A lot of people are uh, blaming the coaching staff. And I think you can warrant some respect to both of those cases, especially towards the coaching staff and the marriage to the inside zone. But I do also believe that these running backs can don't need to stick straight to that inside zone. A lot of people were coming at me saying, well, it's the inside zone. It's Pat Shermer uh, saying that he can't bounce anything outside. How many times did Barkley bounce things outside in this game? He did it at least two or three times. What? Why would he not do this if he saw an advantageous hole? He just missed the hole. Right. It's that simple. And it's not a huge indictment on Barkley. He's not horrible. I'm not saying anything like that. But you would just like your running back kind of notice the blocks, notice that seal, notice the kick out, and see a gigantic hole there. And I believe it's that simple. It, I mean, yes, coaching could be accredited to this negativity around this run game. This run game sucks, and I do believe the inside zone and the marriage that Pat Shermer has to it is a big reason why. But that doesn't mean Barkley doesn't bear some of the blame when he hesitates or doesn't see the field and utilize great vision. I believe those two things can coexist with each other, and it seems like a lot of people do not believe that. Yeah, and we know that's the case because we saw it at Penn State. It was an issue that he got knocked for in the pre-draft process, and we saw it last year. Not as much in the second half when the O-line started to gel, but we did see it. And again, remember, some of those second half O-line starting to gel games were because the Giants' schedule was easy and they weren't facing fronts like the Bears and the Cowboys. You know, they were facing easier fronts uh, to run through. And of course, obviously, you know, Jamon Brown was playing really good as well, and, and so was, you know, really Solder. Solder was a guy who... And both Solder and Hernandez were guys who went from playing really good football in the second half of the season, specifically Hernandez, specifically both of them, really. I mean, Solder, I thought, was the Giants' best run blocker when I watched the All-22 of the second half of the 2018 season. Now both of them are not playing good football, so it's going to hurt your team. Um, And I don't want to pin them for all the blame, but, you know, some of Barkley's deficiencies, I think, were hidden because of that. And, you know, he when you watch Dalvin Cook run behind that scheme, it doesn't look like the same runner that... Barkley is behind the Giants scheme and we'll see if that changes if the Giants change offensive coordinators and coaches and go to a more gap power based scheme maybe that'll help him but maybe he's just not that kind of running back and he's more of the big play type and somebody who can be an excellent receiver at some point in his career with a different staff all those things could be in play but to give to assign no blame to Barkley I, I think is cheating yourself as a fan and honestly I think it's something that we see too often from the Giants fan base but on that note Nick Let's dive into some questions from the listeners. We'll start yeah, with right Chitor. before we get that. I might have said right before we get to that. I may have said the B gap meant the C gap. Just wanted to clarify. Let's no go doubt. Ahead. And actually, before we get to that, I did want to mention and give some props to my boy Caden Smith, who, by the way, caught a, a, a big time throw from Jones that I forgot to mention. I wasn't even included in my earlier breakdown of Jones. Up the seam, awesome body control and ability to 
to to stay in the air and make that catch. Caden Smith, to me, looks like a player because I think that aside from the blocking, which we hope will improve and did improve in this game specifically, but, you know, has been spotty at times, as you mentioned, I believe that he has really good body control and really good lateral movement. It's what I thought the first watch, and it's what I thought on the All-22. Anything specific traits-wise or anything from Smith that stands out to you that makes you think that he could also – makes you also think, I should say, that he could be a player? I just wrote an article for SB Nation's Big Blue View on Caden Smith and this game, so you should go check that out. But, yeah, I believe he held up well at the point of attack and really readjusted when he was taking strong punches from Darius Smith, Preston Smith, guys who kind of outweigh him by 15, 20 pounds. And he really positioned himself well and had awareness, showed that football IQ that he got while playing football at the Cardinal. So – I thought in the blocking phase of things, he really, really improved from his last game. Granted, he was going up against Khalil Mack and some of those boys, Leonard Floyd. But but he jumped out on the film in that phase, something that I didn't think he would be able to do, especially against the Packers. Packers have some big boys. When it came to receiving, you're right. Body control, ability to high point was something that he did in college. And he sort of did it on that one play that was – down the field where he subtly just kind of did a slight double move and found his way open and was sort of deceptive. I mean, the Giants trusted him with the tight end screen that they've utilized with Evan Ingram, and he used really good timing to release his blocker, not push him too far upfield. I think it was Rashawn Gary to sell the fact that it was a screen, and he was utilized on drags. He's not the fastest kind of guy, but I do believe that Ken Smith can be the number two tight end, possibly if he continues on the trajectory that he's kind of on right now when it comes to playing. And it seems like the coaching staff does trust him for a number three tight end. He was involved in this game plan, and if he keeps improving on the blocking, then he's definitely somebody who will be a lot cheaper than Red Elson, possibly the number two tight end next season. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, And again, like you mentioned, comes from a really good background for tight ends. But on that note, let's dive into some questions from the listeners. And we start with Jason Torrance, who wants to know, what are your thoughts on completely cleaning house? And that means bringing in an outsider to be the general manager. So Steve Tisch, I want to say today, talked about he didn't assign any kind of vote of confidence to this coaching staff or Dave Gettleman. And I believe Tish and Mara are going to have a real discussion about cleaning house this offseason. And I'm not always a fan of cleaning house two years into a regime. That is not something that I feel is usually something that's a long-term success. You don't want to become the Browns, but I don't see it with Pat Shermer. I don't. And if you do get rid of Pat Shermer, do you really want to keep Dave Gettleman around, have him bring in his coach? I think it's interesting that Ron Rivera, who obviously has some sort of rapport with Dave Gettleman, they were together in Carolina, just became a free agent per se. And uh, I think things can get incredibly interesting for the New York Giants in the next couple months. But cleaning house is an option. It really is. But who are you bringing in? And that really is the question. Who are you bringing in? You can't just bring in someone, bring in someone. Has to be someone with a real plan, someone with a really good staff, really good coaching staff, really good scouting staff, really good analytical staff. All of those things are incredibly important. Yeah, it's interesting, Jason, because I think there is some rot with the Giants. I think it's pretty clear when you watch some players go on to have better careers elsewhere. DJ Fluker, Eric Flowers, especially from the offensive line development standpoint. Um, but I think there's also some risk in going outside the organization and taking someone like, you know, hot name, even like a Lewis Riddick who intrigues me because these guys really don't have the same exact experience as some of the guys who've been around personnel 
for years, like a guy like Dave Gettleman, who's really not done that bad of a job. You look at just purely his evaluation from the college level. And then you just look at some of just the basic things that you need from a GM. If you're going to clean house, it means you're going to get rid of Kevin Abrams, who's done a masterful job manipulating the Giants' salary cap. Giants have never had a salary cap issue. They've always spent in free agency. Uh, the cap is a massive myth among fans who you know believe that you can't do things like sign Golden Tate. And you, meanwhile, you have $175 million to spend, and you're never up against it. But Point is, Abrams done an excellent job making these type of moves possible, even in seasons where they're rebuilding or they're taking on massive dead cap like they did this year. They were still able to bring in players to help their roster this year. So it really just depends if you have a good plan in place. And I don't think that's as easily said as done. It's easy to just look at the situation from a 30,000 foot view and say they do need to clean house. And I'm not saying they don't because there's good merit that this had, there's some rot. There's a lot of rot under the under John Mara versus Wellington Mara. And, uh, and, you know, I always dig back to where it started for me was the Josh Brown incident, the former Giants kicker, who John Mara knew, committed domestic violence against his wife, knew of an incident during his Pro Bowl season in Hawaii where they had an incident. Um, and I don't know what kind of details he knew, Mara, but I bet he knew pretty well. I, I, I would guesstimate that he knew more details than, than you would think. And yet continued to employ this guy. Um, and that was a disgrace to the to the organization. And to me, it was kind of just something that Wellington never would have stood for. You got to remember something with Wellington. He was he was a visionary. He was a guy who created the original collective bargaining agreement for the NFL that really helped get teams like the Packers on the map and give out of market teams a chance, which you don't see, you know, always in other sports. So I don't really think his son, John, has been anywhere close to that. And there are massive issues. But I think to do something like that, it would require... Um, it would require, you know, insight into what you have moving forward and, and a really strong plan. And I don't know if you Giants can pull that together all of a sudden. Ezra Sockel asked, if the Giants are picking one, would you or picking at number one? So assuming they have the number one pick, would you consider pulling an Arizona Cardinals type move and taking a QB while trading Jan- Daniel Jones? Absolutely not. That's all I have. <laughs> Interesting. Nick, we're. At a different point with this one, which is interesting. Um, so again, let's let's go back here and rewind a bit. For me, again, Daniel Jones' ceiling is a guy who is an above-average quarterback who can win a Super Bowl on a good team if he proves to me that he can come up clutch in big moments and lead big drives. Something we're never going to get a chance to really see this year because the Giants' defense is so bad. Now, I don't have a Patrick Mahomes type ceiling with him. I don't have a Deshaun Watson type, you know, whatever, Tom Brady, whoever you want to say. Having said that, if you're the Giants, or if I'm the Giants, and I had that type of ceiling and a much higher floor, or at least the floor of Daniel Jones in any of these quarterback prospects that are in the 2020 draft, I would consider making that move depending on what I can get for Jones. Now, based on their rookie seasons and the promise Jones has shown, which is way more promise than Josh Rosen showed last year, I would venture to think the Giants could potentially get a a first-round pick, especially if the rumors about the Broncos being interested were true, and if Drew Locke fizzles out there, which we'll yet see. Now, if that's the case, and the Giants can get a first-rounder for Jones, and they felt— So a lot of things would have to come into play here, Ezra, for me to be interested in this. Yeah, Dan, I I just don't see any of those things materializing. I don't think people— No doubt. And listen, I like what I've seen from Joe Burrow, but it's a small sample size there. Uh, first of all, I'm not a big Tua guy. I'm going to say that right away. Even without the injury, I would be very, very hesitant to take a quarterback with that throwing motion 
uh, anywhere near the top of the draft. With that size combo and throwing motion, it's nothing I like. I, I hate that loopy motion. I think I think it's really dangerous in the NFL. I haven't seen it work that often. Um, it scares the hell out of me. Burrow, on the other hand, I mean, limited sample size, but he looks unbelievable to me. Again, such a limited sample size, so it's so tough to know, especially when you're on such a good team like LSU. Um, and they're kind of showing something they never showed with that with that spread, up-tempo type vertical offense that, you know, really LSU's never had. But if you really did feel like you had the next Andrew Luck, that's when I'd make that move. Um, and what's interesting, I don't know if anyone would ask this, but let's say Kyler Murray was in this draft. I don't know if I could turn down trading Jones to get Murray there. I mean, for me, again, Nick, it would require a first-round pick. I wouldn't do it for a second-round pick, I don't think. Um, unless, of course, it was like an Andrew Luck type prospect. But yeah, I'm not as adverse to it as you are, Nick. Hmm, that's interesting. I would ch- uh, take Chase Young and then ride it out with Jones. That's me personally, though. That's fair. And I, and I'm not saying that's the wrong move. And that's what I hopefully oh. do. There would just be so many factors that need to come into play for me to not do that. Um, and again, if all those came to play, like I said, and I could get a lock, then I might do it. Um, Jason Dodge asks, miscommunications in the back seven and on the O-line. Is this typical in the NFL or specific to the Giants? I mean, I do feel with Betcher's scheme, it's a little bit more enhanced. And the fact, when you compound that fact with the reality that the Giants have just so many young players in that secondary, it's going to be a recipe for disaster. And that's why I honestly feel that on first and second down, teams should just take a knee or lose four or five yards against the Giants because if it's a third and 15, the Giants are going to find a way to blow that coverage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Literally, we've seen it way too many times with this team. And when it comes to the offensive line, I honestly think the, the finger points at Hal Hunter. I think it has to. I think he's the biggest culprit in this. That, I mean, they don't execute, but I don't feel like – I mean, it's hard for me to say I'm sitting here in a damn chair. I'm not at the practice. So let's put that into perspective. But – I don't know if this team is coached on those finer points of the inside zone well enough. I mean, it just does not right. seem like they are. They're constantly right. fooled, and we harped on it on this podcast. And I think that both the back seven and that offensive line is just those miscommunications are a testament to coaching and youth. And there's some reality to the situation that people aren't considering that you have a rookie quarterback versus a 14 or 15 year veteran calling the shots at the line of scrimmage, you're going to have more offensive line breakdowns. You're going to have more pass protection breakdowns. That's the fact of the matter. People underestimate what Eli did in that regard and how hard it is for a rookie like Jones to come in and do it the same way or anywhere near. And that's part of the issue too. So factor that in as well into your own evaluations. Josh also asks who has shown the most growth in our opinion this year and who could we consider building blocks for 2020 and 2021? I would say the most growth, and I mean, I've been kind of talking about him all the time on Twitter, is Dalvin Tomlinson. I mean, he's been a beast when it comes to the run game. And when I think about building blocks on the defensive side, I think you got Tomlinson. I think Leonard Williams will be around for a while. You got Dexter Lawrence. Uh, I think Zimenez is just a situational guy. I'm not going to put him in that category. I think Carter hasn't proven enough to be called a building block per se. At the second level of the defense, I don't. Uh, Ryan Connolly could be that. I don't want to overreact to Ryan Connolly, but from what he showed in a very small sample size, he definitely intrigued me. And then the secondary, I think Baker is a building block. I think he's had a lot of mistakes, and if you can get his mental side right, he can be a building block. And Julian Love is kind of working his way to that as well. You still need to see a little bit more, though, from Ballantyne and Sam Beal. From what I've seen from Sam Beal, it hasn't been great so far yeah i mean and i'll take the flip side of the ball there and give my building blocks and i'll start with hernandez i still think he's going to be a building block for this team i think 
a lot of the issue is Hal Hunter related. I really do believe that. And addition to playing next to Lapio, who I do not think is a building block, and Solder, who's clearly not a building block. And it's really sad for Solder because I defended him last year and he played better football than people gave him credit for last year, especially in the second half. But this season's an absolute disaster and it's just hard to see it going anywhere forward. I think Zeitler's also a building block. He's still young for an offensive lineman. I think the Giants have three more good years out of him, especially when he doesn't have to play next to Lapio. Um, so I'm going to give them two building blocks. I still want to put Evan Ingram as a building block. I think, you know, maybe you get a guy like Rivera in and he brings in North Turner and you could have a situation where the tight end all of us, all of a sudden becomes a massive game breaker in this offense. Like it has been in North Turner's offenses in the past. I do believe that there's a chance Caden Smith can be a building block. I won't put him there yet, but I really like what I've seen. And then finally I'm putting Sterling Shepard and I'm putting Darius Slade in the building blocks for this Giants team, because those are guys that I think are going to be on this team in 2021. Um, and then, obviously, Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. We can pretty much yeah. clearly call them building blocks. They were picked at number six and number two overall. And we've seen a lot of flashes from both to feel confident enough to call them building blocks. D. Goodman asks, it would be great to get your guys' take on how DeAndre Baker and Sam Beal played in this game. He believes their development is key for the Giants moving forward. Yeah, when it comes to uh, Baker... I feel he had a solid game, but there were there was the drop pass where he gave inside leverage to Devontae Adams. It's coming to my mind where Adams kind of just beat him inside. But overall, he's still showing that physicality against the run. And Sam Beal, there have been times, especially in the Chicago game, where he was just way out of phase. Right. I saw it maybe once or twice in this game, but it wasn't anything that was glaring. And I know uh, a question that is coming up is by Nemesis, and I'm just going to kind of harp on that right now. And it talks about... Should Beal immediately drop back on that Lazar touchdown towards the end of the first quarter? And I just wanted to say I think it's a little bit hard for him to do that because the running back was out in the flats with like three blockers there. So Beal really had to respect that. If he dropped, Rodgers would have just took that and it would have been an easy touchdown there. It's just Bethea give up that inside leverage and it was just a really good play design by the Packers against this specific defense the Giants were running. Yeah, no doubt. And Phillip wants to know – some potential coaches to consider if Shermer is let go. So I think the Ron Rivera thing is going to be interesting now. I mean, he's had success with Carolina, went to the Super Bowl. I've seen a lot of Giants fans on Twitter really, really harping against it. But if you bring in Ron Rivera, which I'm not totally against, I just need to know who that offensive coordinator is. That's the main thing is getting that offensive coordinator, somebody who can work with Daniel Jones and build that offense and really fix that offensive line when it comes to coaching. But I do think Matt Rule, we talked about him on the podcast earlier uh, on another episode. I think he is a really good potential candidate as well. He's the Baylor head coach and he totally turned that program around. I mean, remember the Sean Oakman years of Baylor with our Bryles and all just the negative shit that was happening out there at Baylor. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, they were just running wild. <laughs> but he kind of brought stability back to the French or back to the college and has done a really, really good job. And he seems like he could be interesting. And I wanted to throw a name out there that gets just to you, Dan. This gets thrown around every year. And I think it's somewhat ridiculous, but I do believe this specific person has a fondness in his heart for the New York Giants. And that's Nick Saban. Now, I think it's ridiculous, but I wanted to get your take. Yeah, it's funny because with Saban, there was a there was interesting, you know, report that came out the first time, I guess it was when McAdoo was fired, that the Giants were really close to pulling him out and he and his wife at the last second overruled type of deal. I don't know how much truth there is to that. It's so hard to know. I mean, I just can't imagine 
Nick Saban would ever leave Alabama for the NFL. It just seems like such a risk for him. Um, and he's so entrenched there and his life's there and he's being paid a lot of money. And it's really easy, to be honest, to be the Alabama football coach, in my opinion. Um, a lot of that talent just comes right to you. I mean, I'm sure he does a good job recruiting. More importantly, I think he does a good job scheming on the defense side of the ball. But I just think it's so unlikely, Nick. But it goes back to what you said. And, you know, that's why both Rivera and Rule are high on my list as well, especially if Rivera can bring in North Turner with him as the offensive coordinator to work with Jones. Um, but And why guys like Robert Salah, who people ask me about, are just low on my list. For starters, if I'm going to go coordinator out, I'm always going offensive. I'm never going with these defensive coordinators. So many failures on that side of the ball. Recent ones, too. Steve Wilkes, tons of guys like that. But more importantly, I'm just not in the market I'm for the next Giants coach for a coordinator type. I need someone like a rule, like a Rivera type. That's what this team needs. It's enough of the coordinators. They, it's too much of a risk. So for me, I'm out on guys like Salah. And we'll see where they go from there. But, you know, hopefully more candidates will continue to open up. But, you know, as the Panthers owner, David Tepper, a New Jersey native from Livingston, New Jersey, actually, my family knows his family. But unfortunately, not well enough because, you know, I don't make any money from him. <laughs> I guess I say I'm not connected to him in any way. He does have a daughter who's pretty, but she married somebody else. Um Kind of missed the boat on that one, Nick. I really wish I could play some sad music for you right Ooh. now. Like just <laughs> do, 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 do. Yeah. Think about that. Think about my life if I had found a way to get in there. Man. Hey, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be talking man. to some dipshit like me on a podcast, I'll be telling you that much. You're not a dip, Nick. Don't 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 ever say that about yourself again. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one who's fantasizing about marrying marrying the daughter of somebody of a of a rich former head fund and owner. But the point of this is to mention what Tepper said today at his presser after firing Rivera. And it was that one, they want to move in an analytics direction. They didn't feel Rivera was that. He said that without saying it. But more importantly, he wanted to fire him now so he can get a head start on the head coaching candidates. And the Giants are not going to fire Shermer before the end of the season. So they will not be getting that head start. And instead they'll be falling behind. So that's something to keep in mind as we move forward. But let's move on to Derek Passan, who asked, is Leonard Williams really helping this team, or should that trade just be considered a sunk cost? I feel like Leonard Williams is helping the team, although I did not like the fact that the Giants traded a third-round pick for him. So let's lay that out. thought that was too high of a cost for an impending free agent. But I still see him defeating one-on-one blocks and getting pressure on the quarterback. He has 19 total pressures in the four games that he's played, seven hits, 12 hurries. And that's all well and good, but he's not getting the sacks. He's also making an impact in the run game. And I think that's another thing that is a really positive thing for this team although it hasn't materialized into wins so when you look at it from that perspective it's going to look like it's a total waste but i do see value from leonard williams but that third round pick man and you dan and i have talked about this and i'm hoping somehow that it's the compensatory pick we're going to get for collins but that couldn't have been established in the trade because the giants don't have the compensatory pick yet but if that is the what number two pick in the third round number one pick in the round whatever it's going to end up being oof, that's going to be a tough pill to swallow Yep, no doubt. Um, again, I'm with Nick on this one. Don't like the value of the trade, but do think that he has been much better than people realize. I'm a big believer in hits and hurries for pressures over sacks. Not a believer in sacks. I think it's a very overrated stat. And I've seen it on the All-22. He's getting more pressure than you think, um, and he's a, a factor in the run game. He's a real player that they have on that line. And he's somebody who I think could take a massive jump if they get Chase Young on this team playing alongside him. So 
I'm not ready to call it a sunk cost. I think, again, it was bad value, but I'm fine. I, I, I'm sorry. I would lean strongly towards re-signing him. All right, Bobby Madelon asked, if you were able to fire one person from the coaching staff, including the GM, but everyone else remained as is, who would you fire? Uh, that would be Hal Hunter for me at the moment. Oh, wait, two point, but, question, Nick. It also says, oh. sorry, you would be able to replace that one person with anyone. Okay, so if I if we were to go the Pat Shermer route, that means this entire staff, including Hal Hunter and some of these other positional coaches, would be retained. So I think I would have to go with Hal Hunter, and I'm not gonna if uh, if I could replace with anybody. <laughs> I might go with uh, someone like Doug Marone who's probably going to be out of a job, somebody who has some experience coaching offensive line, tight ends, and things along those lines. I don't, I don't know too many just strict offensive line guys other than the great Dante Scarnecchia and a couple of the other dudes like that, but that's something that I wanted to pitch out there. What about you, Dan? I'm on the same boat with you. It would be Hal Hunter, though you know I'm intrigued by some of the potential GMs I could replace Dave Gettleman with because that would be the real highest upside route. I'm just not a big believer in knowing GMs. People are like, Nick Casario, Nick Casario. What do you guys really know about Nick Casario and how much he really has to do with that operation there? And and also, it's just uh, the Nick Casario stuff to me is mind boggling. It seems like a name that's just been tossed around Twitter. People have really no idea what impact he has or has not had. And it's like, they're idiots if you don't go for Nick Casario. But because I don't know much about who great GM candidates are, I'm going to stick with what I do know. And it's that Hal Hunter sucks. So we're going to replace Hal Hunter. And I'm not going to be able to get Zarnecchia because he's never leaving New England. And the Broncos made the really wise decision last offseason to pay massive bucks for Mike Munchak, who's another elite offensive line coach. But Nick, there is going to be an elite offensive line coach available this offseason, most likely. I assume he won't be retained as the head coach, and he's on that level, in my opinion, of Cernakia and of Munchak. And that's Bill Callahan over in Washington, who has worked mm. a miracle with this Redskins offensive line. They don't have Trent Williams. They have no talent at tackle. He somehow made Eric Flowers a competent NFL offensive lineman. Eric Flowers should have been out of the NFL, and now he's a competent NFL offensive lineman. That alone is worth paying big bucks for. Uh, and he might be available, and the Giants aren't going to pay him. They're not this type of team. They should open up the damn checkbook and get Bill Callahan over here because he is the best teacher available on offensive line play. And what is more important in the NFL than having good offensive line play? Almost nothing besides good quarterback play, obviously. But that is oftentimes related to good offensive line play. So that's my a take. Yeah. A byproduct of it. And that's my take, Nick. Open up the damn checkbook. Get Callahan in here. That's what the Redskins did, by the way. It's a reason he's on the Redskins. They paid up to get him as their old line coach and then obviously promoted him when they fired Gruden. Um, but, yeah, that's what I would do. Some some other interesting thoughts for me would be getting Jay Gruden and his offensive coordinator. Love Gruden. Love his play calling. Love what he, how he made Cousins look competent. Love how he made Alex Smith look competent. Um, and even Case Keenum to some extent early on in the season before you know that offensive line kind of collapsed under him a little bit. And Keenum just showed how bad he was. But those are some of my guys I'd consider. Alex Lewin wants to know, let's say Mara – I love these hypotheticals. We're getting a lot of these interesting hypotheticals today, Nick. He said, let's say Mara tests both of you guys to take over tomorrow as co-general manager of the Giants. What a dream come true this would be. What would be your plan to get this team back, on, back in contention? That includes what do you do with Shermer? Who do you hire? Who do you draft in free agency, et cetera? And I'll, I'll stop. I'll cut it off real quick. Alex, we're not going to do draft and free agency right now. We're not prepared for that, and it's impossible to be at this time. There's still so much to fall on that. 
But we can we can do draft. Let's okay. I'll back that up. Let's do draft, Nick. Assuming we the Giants have the number two pick. So and let so so you're the co GM. What do you do? Okay. Well, I'm going to go with Chase Young, and in the later rounds, I'm like we've talked about. I'm going to try to build that offensive line. Try to get talent on that offensive line while also looking for a true cover one deep safety, someone who could be that free safety. And maybe Julian Love can live up to that, but you still want to bring competition in to compete with Love. Also, linebacker. Need to get a true number one linebacker. I think Connolly has showed flashes. I think Connolly could be a really good number two linebacker maybe, but getting a number one linebacker, which Giants might not be able to land, albeit guys like Fred Warner, which we've talked about, was found in the third round. So trying to find talent in those specific positions, still adding corners, uh, I think a wide receiver is something that can be explored as well. I don't know if we agree on that, but just bringing in those talented people. I think finding an offensive line, upgrading from Alapio and Rimmers, those two guys who are, I would say, adequate players, but somebody you're looking to improve on. And then keeping Zeitler, Hernandez, and then Solder obviously is something you want to improve upon as well with his cap hit and everything that along those lines. He might still be on this team. Maybe you can move him the right tackle. I know that's harder or it's easier said than done, but I think you have to focus on that offensive line, bringing in a coach for that offensive line, somebody who's competent and can coach that offensive line, while getting a coaching staff assembled that is cohesive and has innovation towards it, something that isn't just the same shit every single week, which we've seen this entire season. Yeah, for me, what I'm doing, Nick, and I like your plan. I'm on board with that plan. But what I'm doing, I'm firing Shermer. That's he said, what do I want to do with Shermer? Firing Shermer. Seen enough. Had enough. I'm bypassing rule unless I have seen that rule in his interview has a great plan for his coaching staff because assistant coaches play such a key role. Shermer assembled a very poor coaching staff, the exception of Betcher, who I kind of like and just think he's kind of screwed by the talent. And I'm not sold that rule can assemble a great coaching staff. What I am sold is that Ron Rivera might be able to assemble great coaching staff, and I think he has an easy first get, and that is with um, – I'm sorry. And that is with North Turner, who would be a perfect fit. And by the way, he's had some really good defensive coordinators under him, Steve Wilkes, Sean McDermott. So I think he could do a pretty good job getting a defensive coach in too and building out his staff in a strong way. So because of that, I feel safer with Rivera. And so I'm hiring Rivera, and then my draft is going to be simple. I'm going to take Chase Young at two. And then I'm going to focus on a few things. I will consider wide receiver Nick, but only in the Darius Slayton fashion if they have a good hunch on a day three pick. Otherwise, I'm avoiding cornerbacks. I'm sticking with all the investments I made. If there's a deep field, deep half safety that's doable with that second round pick, I'll take him. I doubt that will be the case, but we've seen it before. The Titans found Bayard at the beginning of the second round. Um, there's been a few other deep half safeties that have succeeded in that in that top 40 range, so it's possible. And otherwise, Nick, if there's not an inline tight end who I like, somebody who can play both ways and block uh, as an NBA receiver, then I'm pretty much just focusing on that second level with the linebackers. And on the flip side, I'm building that offensive line out and looking specifically for an impact center like the Saints found in the second round with Eric McCoy this year after their longtime excellent center retired unexpectedly uh, from the Saints. So, those are what that's what I'm doing with the team. If I have it again, I think we've done enough with the corners. I think we've done enough with the receivers, in my mind at least. And obviously, running back is another position I would almost never invest in. Now that I have Saquon Barkley, assuming that I have Saquon Barkley, because remember, as GM, 
this none of this would ever happen, Nick, because I would have never taken Barkley at number two, and I still wouldn't have taken Barkley at two. I would have done the exact trade the Colts did with the Jets, except instead of going from three to six like they did, go to two to six with the Jets, pick up Quentin Nelson, and then get all those picks. But we are here. It's hindsight now, 2020, unless you were saying it like me the entire time that they should never take Saquon Barkley. And look, fans who have seen Saquon Barkley's rookie year think it was the right pick. And most fans who listen to this podcast, I do believe, think it was the right pick and are happy with how it went down. But it's just not how I would have done things. So that's kind of how it is. Last questions of the day from Tom Lemmy, longtime listener, and I love these questions. First one, Daniel Jones' pocket presence versus Green Bay as compared to prior weeks. Seemed like he was sliding and moving in the pocket very well on Sunday. What do you make of that? Oh, he definitely was. I mean, he stepped up several times, even on some of those interceptions. He stepped up well and was just kind of maneuvering the pocket, resetting his feet, things along those lines, things you want to see from a rookie quarterback. So I enjoyed the fact that he did that in this piss poor weather with an offensive line that didn't exactly. I felt like they held up better than they have in the past couple games and really this season, but he, they were still getting beat and there was still pressure on Jones that he forced him to step up. But, I mean, I feel he, he kind of laid it out great there, Tom. I mean, I feel he played well in that facet of the game. Yeah, no doubt. And there were definitely times where there wasn't pressure and there were times where they got beat really quickly. It was kind of a combo of those. Um, an interesting question from Tom is this. What offensive scheme do you think would be the best fit for Jones in 2020, assuming Shermer's gone? I, you know what's funny? I... I like thought going into the draft that Sh- Jones going into Shermer's scheme would be the ideal fit, but Shermer's scheme hasn't seemed to adapt or grow from that whatsoever. I think those quick get the ball out of his hands, two-step drops, shotgun, just quick timing routes, things along those lines really fits Jones well with his accuracy, with his timing. Uh, and I think if Shermer could be more innovative with his play calling, definitely utilize his personnel in a much more proficient in manner, I feel that could be a good marriage with Daniel Jones's skill set. What about you, Dan? A coordinator like Shermer and a system like Shermer's is what I'm looking for. A lot of mesh, a lot of get the ball out quick. More usage of bootleg would be nice. More usage of his of his legs would be nice. But really, I think somebody like Jay Gruden would be a perfect fit for him because his system is very similar in, in some ways to Shermer's. Um, but just he does it a lot better, and he's a much better play caller, and he utilizes the running backs in the passing game a lot better. Just look at what he did with Chris Thompson throughout his career, who was really should have been an undrafted type, you know, fairly borderline talent in my opinion, uh, but really made him one of the best receiving backs. Um, that I don't think was by coincidence. So that would be like a perfect offensive system for me. But I would also take North Turner, who I think has done an excellent job there in Carolina with Christian McCaffrey in the passing game with the tight ends there and just, you know, making Kyle Allen look competent, you know, getting a career best first half of the season in 2018 out of Cam Newton before the shoulders acted up. So those, so it's similar to what we have now, Tom. I think this is kind of the best fit for Jones' skill set, but it just has to be a better play caller, somebody who doesn't run the ball in the ten, top 10 on first and 10s and isn't tipping plays and, and, you know, making it so obvious for other defensive coordinators. So really, it's not the system that bothers us. And I don't want to speak for you, Nick, but I believe you feel the same way. It's less the system and it's more the play calling mix. Yeah, that and the situational management Trimmer has as a head coach has been abysmal as well. Yeah, well, that's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother can of worms, my friend. Yep. 
And on that note, guys, we girls, we thank you again for tuning in on this dreadful to, to this podcast in a dreadful season. We understand good things are coming. There will be more to talk about other than just the Giants all 22 of a losing season. We have big, hopefully, moves coming to the coaching staff and to the team, to the roster and free agency and the draft. But stick with us because we're going to break down every bit of news that comes our way and the last four games on all 22 where hopefully this roster can show some signs of improvement. If you do enjoy the pot, one favor to ask. We do ask that you rate and review us on iTunes and make sure you download every podcast that goes a big way to helping us grow this show. So that's the only thing we'll ever ask of you. So if you can do it for us, that would be awesome. And on that note, we will talk to you guys Sunday after another Giants game and for another quick reaction podcast. Have a great rest of your week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.